Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Meaning of Health. For this episode, Courtney and I were joined by three people who completed honours projects at the School of Population and Global Health in 2019. Maddie Ford, Treasure Adjanson and Julian Ming all focused on quite different topics which we go into in more detail during the episode, as well as getting them to reflect on their motivation for enrolling in honours and how they found the process of completing it. We would like to acknowledge the assistance of Dr. Karen Martin, a previous podcast guest, and the Honours Coordinator at the school for helping us to make this episode happen, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. So welcome everyone to another episode of The Meaning of Health. I'm one of your hosts, Craig. And my name's Courtney. And we're here for a very special episode today. We are. We have a, a room full of people to speak to today, which is great. Um, so we have Julian, Treasure and Maddie, who were honour students in 2019 at the School of Population and Global Health. Do you guys just want to introduce yourselves and tell us where you are now and what you're up to? So I'm Julian. So I'm currently in second year medicine at UWA. Uh, and last year I did my honours with my supervisors, Dr. Karen Martin and Dr. Erin Kelty, and I had a great time. Excellent. So I'm Treasure, and I'm currently in the second year of medicine at UWA as well. And last year I completed my honours with Dr. Judith Katzner-Lenbogen and Dr. Daniela Bonsmith, and my topic was on acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease, and it was very insightful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm Maddie. I'm working this year with Dr. Karen Martin as a research officer. Um, last year I completed my honours project with Dr. Nita Berry and Dr. Peter Franklin on the incidence of pharyngeal stomach and colorectal cancers following exposure to asbestos at Widnew. Okay, interesting. A really interesting mix of projects. Yeah, there. we've got lots of topics to cover today. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. So we might start with you, Maddie, as, as you were last, just then for the first... <laughs> So yep. tell us a bit about the background of your study. How did you get involved in it? Um, what, why did it interest you? Um, well, I think I went into honours really wanting to build my quantitative data skills. So I was interested in working with linked data and I knew in the booklet, we've got an honours booklet which has suggested projects. Um, there was a few on using the Whitnoom cohorts um, and I hadn't really ever learned about Whitnoom, sort of what happened there. So. When I met with um, Peter, it was really interesting, sort of, yeah. Um, yeah. Do you want to give us a bit of background on what did happen at Whitnoom, historically? Yeah, so um, Whitnoom was a mine um, up in the Pilbara, and um, they uh, mined chrysidolite asbestos, which has obviously since um, been found to be a carcinogen. Um, and so since the mine closed, there's been two data sets or two, so, sorry, um, what's the word? Cohorts? Yeah, two cohorts established, so the Wittenoom Workers Cohort and the Wittenoom Residents Cohort, um, and they've been followed up to see sort of their, um, whether their cancer incidence has sort of increased okay. um, compared to the general population. What, what period of time did, the, did those cohorts cover, roughly? You don't, I'm not looking for exact figures, but like, um, it yeah, 70s so, or 80s? Or? Yeah, from the 60s till um, they keep getting updated, so okay. the last linkage was 2017, okay. I believe. So there's people still living in Whitman? No, sorry, that closed, so the town was closed in 1993 and okay. so de 2007, but um, yeah, the mine closed in, so the mine operated between 1943 and 1966, 
Um, so yeah, it's sort of measuring their cancer incidence post closure. Yeah. And so there's obviously still people alive that were exposed yeah. during that time yeah. and you, you mm -hmm. follow them up. Yeah. yeah. And there's, there's one thing that's just been mentioned a couple of times. I don't think we've covered it yet in any of our podcasts, um, and that's the, the idea of linked data. Yeah. So just very quickly, linked data is the ability to link different health data sets together, like your, your um, hospitalizations and your death and all that kind of stuff. So then we get like a clear picture of, of records for everyone in whatever cohort you're looking at. So WA, we're very lucky that we can do that here. Yeah. So both the workers and residents have been linked to the WA and National um, Cancer Registry and also the death register, so to see dates of death. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Excellent. And uh, so what did you find? <laughs> <laughs> um, so because we used two methods for both the, so there was an external analysis looking at the incidence of the three cancers. So I looked at pharyngeal stomach and colorectal. So the incidence of these cancers compared to the general population and then the internal analysis, so that was external, the internal analysis looked at dose-response relationships, so whether, um, say, some workers exposed at higher levels had an increased risk of these cancers compared to um, perhaps residents with lower exposures. Um, and we used two methods, okay. passive surveillance. Right, yeah. So we, we weren't 100% sure whether these people had moved out of the country and then sort of passed away somewhere else and we couldn't really collect that data. Yeah. So it's just administrative data. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we used method one and method two. So method two censored people at their, so they were assumed to be alive, sorry. Mm -hmm. um, whereas method two censored people at their date last known to be alive, which was collected through other sources. So method one was an underestimate and method two was an overestimate. So our findings were slightly conflicting for, we um, calculated standardised incidence ratios and method one, the standardised incidence ratios were mostly below one and method two, standardised incidence ratios were mostly above one. Um, so we couldn't really um, definitively say whether there was an increased incidence compared to the general population. And the incidence being the first uh, time that they get diagnosed with the yeah. cancer of interest in yeah. this case. Yeah. So why, forgive my ignorance here, why those three cancers? Uh, so the International Agency for Research on Cancer um, has grouped these three cancers as group two. Ah. So these are cancers with insufficient evidence of causal association in humans. Mm -hmm. um, whereas cancers like mesothelioma, lung cancer, laryngeal cancer and ovarian cancer are group one. So there's sufficient evidence of a causal association. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, so your research has contributed, contributed to the uh, unknowing, I guess, because you weren't able to truly yeah. figure out where And in was. the literature for these three cancers, there's sort of a lot of conflicting evidence as to whether mm -hmm. it is or isn't, but they hadn't been specifically looked at for Whitnum workers and residents. Um, and it's a very sort of um, major data set looking at asbestos exposure. So, okay. Yeah. yeah, interesting. So, so you didn't find a dose response? Um, there were um, trends, I guess, so towards positive dose response relationship, but they weren't statistically significant. Okay. Yeah. What's your feel? What do you think? Do you think uh, maybe there's just not enough people that so you didn't get significance or? Yeah, because it's sort of a closed um, cohort that you can't really add anyone else because it's really just the people. That'd be found. really awkward if you could. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Living or working there. So 
um, yeah, you can't really increase the number of participants to sort of get mm -hmm. any statistical significance. Yeah. yeah. And, and just uh, outside of that, do you have a sense of how many of those people are still alive? I don't actually have that here. So. Okay. How many were in your cohort to begin with? Um, over 11,000 in the combined workers oh, and residents. Right. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I mean, it's good for studies. It's not yeah. good for people. But yeah. <laughs> it's a reasonable size for doing yeah, analysis. For research. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and did you have any sort of, uh, what were your main findings then, like in terms of what to do next or, or how to plug that gap in the knowledge? Yeah, whether you think further research should be done in this area and maybe how you do it. Um, I guess, well, what I found was interesting is sort of the statistical methods that we use. Like I could see sort of further studies trying different statistical methods. I guess because I was going and learning about quantitative data skills. Um, like I did, I use Cox regression for dose response relationships, but I can, like going through that process, I can see other ways you could sort of look at it and compare and see what the different sort of methods mm -hmm. found. So there's time to event analysis, yeah. so yeah. how quickly someone gets yeah. the, the condition. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. All right. Well, Treasure, how about yourself? So in my second year of my, or my third year of my undergraduate course, I underwent a research placement um, with Dr. Judith Katzner-Lenbogen. And in that, in my time with them, I didn't really get into the meaty aspects of their research. I was more helping out with the ethics. Um, but through the process, I just saw the passion that um, both my supervisors had for um, acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease and I, I think that just inspired me to yeah do some proper research with mm -hmm. them and so I underwent the project that I did which was looking into the characteristics of um, individuals with acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease um, who appear on the different data sources that we have so hospital data and um, the registered data as well. So mm -hmm. similar to Maddie's project, yeah. mine was a linked data study. Okay. So um, it was part of a bigger project known as the End Rheumatic Heart Disease um, Study of Epidemiology in Australia, mm -hmm. um, uh, which had collated data from hospitals, registers, uh, acute rheumatic fever, rheumatic heart disease registers, and um, death registers as well. And so, awesome. and so where Maddie's was in one town, yours is across the whole country? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we had data from Queensland, New South Wales, but the New South Wales data wasn't part of my study. Mm -hmm. um, the Northern Territory, Western Australia, and South Australia. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's Average. really cool. I wish I had that much data. It'd be so nice. Um, can you just quickly explain what rheumatic heart disease is? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so well, I guess I'll start with acute rheumatic fever. So I think a lot of us would have had a sore throat before. It's often strep throat. Um, what our bodies does is that we elicit an immune response to this infection and we produce antibodies. Um, unfortunately, in some individuals, these antibodies cross-react with the host cells, so it's uh, affecting structures such as the joints, the heart, the skin, and sometimes even the brain, um, and you get that acute the acute condition of acute rheumatic fever. Uh, when you have recurrences of acute rheumatic fever, you can cause extensive damage to um, these structures. Um, and the most significant one is the heart. And yeah, this can lead to um, further complications such as uh, 
stenosis, atrial fibrillation, um, and can cause a premature cardiovascular mortality, um, hence why yeah, it's really important to tackle this, to mm -hmm. think that a sore throat led to you dying of a <laughs> premature cardiovascular mortality is insane. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really sad and yeah. Mm. And so what, what do we know about how to prevent this or treat it when it does happen? Um, so this condition used to be more prevalent previously. Um, it was more widespread throughout the the communities, um, but improvements in hygiene, um, improvements in the healthcare facilities, um, as well as just better understanding and education around the condition has definitely um, reduced the the levels um, and the rates of the condition that we see within the community. Unfortunately, we do still see it within like indigenous communities in Australia at the moment, um, and it shouldn't be the case. It's definitely a condition right now of. Um, disadvantage to yeah. some extent. Okay. Um, so at the moment the mechanisms put in place to kind of alleviate um, yeah, the prevalence of the condition. Um, so they, they've set up registers um, just to monitor the progression of the disease and monitor the individuals that have the disease and ensure that they're getting the treatment mm -hmm. or the prophylactic um, yeah, uh, treatment for it. Yeah. Um, so that's benzathine penicillin G which is and a vaccination that is given to individuals who have had an episode of acute rheumatic fever um, to prevent further episodes from taking place and causing the yeah the condition of rheumatic heart disease. Yep. And so yeah, once once you've been identified to have acute rheumatic fever, you start receiving these vaccinations on a monthly basis for a minimum of ten years, which mm -hmm. is a fairly long time. Yeah, so, that poses challenges. Yeah, to, to definitely. Get to continue the treatment. Yeah, definitely. So you'd rather stop it from happening in the first place. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Can you yeah. imagine getting vaccinations for ten years? No. <laughs> oh, and these vaccinations are also quite painful as well. So right. it's not. It's not pleasant. No, not at all. <laughs> but it's better than you undergoing open heart surgery at the age of eight. So. I mean, yeah. that is true. That yeah. is very, very true. Uh, cool. Okay. So, so your study is obviously around rheumatic heart disease. So, what yes. was the the main finding for your particular study? Like, what okay. was the aim? Of so, that? like, the aim of my study was to look into the characteristics of cases across different sources. So, like I said, um, we have registers in place for surveillance purposes as well as like management of the disease and that can only be effective if you have a good majority of the population who's affected by it on the register itself, um, regardless of compliance. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I was looking into whether there's a pocket of individuals missing, like what, what, are the, what kind of people do we see in the hospital data, which we've used as a proxy of the individuals who have the condition because um, guidelines do recommend that individuals who've been identified to have ARF be hospitalised mm -hmm. um, and RHD, the symptoms associated with that or the complications associated with it, such as um, atrial fibrillation, often require these people to be hospitalised anyways. Yep. Um, so yeah, I was just comparing the characteristics of those people. Um, so I conducted a univariate and a multivariate analysis. Um, so univariate meaning that I looked at like singular variables and mm. yeah, and multivariate looking at the play of uh, multiple variables to a particular outcome, which was okay. done through logistic regression. Yeah. Um, and so what I found from my analysis was that, yes, we are definitely missing people <laughs> um, <laughs> register. Yeah. Um, so uh, the registers were missing uh, 24 to 47% of indigenous um, Australians. Um, 
and th this range was based on the different uh, jurisdictions and then we're missing 55 to 96 percent of the non-indigenous cases on the register which is fairly large um, and likewise the hospital data was also missing some people as well they didn't not everyone in the register had been or had records in our hospital data that we had mm -hmm. and so we're missing roughly 23 percent of the indigenous cases and 10 percent of the non-indigenous cases okay. in the hospital data um, so that was quite significant um, and what we also found was that the northern areas were better at capturing people onto the register compared to like the metropolitan regions okay. and generally speaking people from um, lower socio-economical areas were more likely to be put on the register. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting, why? Yeah, that is very interesting. <laughs> and I think it all goes down to awareness. I think, right. like I said, this condition was more prevalent previously and was rampant throughout the whole of society, whereas now it's more specific to like a, like the indigenous population. And for that reason, I think um, like clinicians and health service providers are not necessarily looking into the non-indigenous cases. They're thinking, oh yeah, no, 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 this is not a case of right. non-indigenous people. So they or know like looking, focus. Yeah, yeah, and it's more prevalent in like rural communities. So they're not really mm -hmm. focusing on the people who have it here in the metropolitan areas, which I think is affecting um, the rates that we see. And does, yeah. do, do cases end up on the register based on hospital admissions or? Um, it's based on a notification process. Right. So there isn't any um, like flagging system in place at the moment. It's based on the doctor's awareness to be like, okay, I have an ARF patient who's come into my clinic, which on tests at UTC and they need to be notified and placed onto a register. So right. without that awareness mm -hmm. and without that step taking place, um, yeah, they're, they're not gonna end up on a register. Okay. And is this a register that's mandatory? Like the cancer register is mandatory? Um, notification is, yeah, it's required, it's mandatory, yes. Yeah. Um, I think, I believe in South Australia, uh, patients have the, patients are required to consent. So if that consent is not provided, they are not necessarily, they don't have to be on the register, but they have to be notified. So. Right. South Australia has like a notification like center and then they've got the register separate. Mm -hmm. Whereas in in the rest of the jurisdictions, um, it's just, yeah, the notifications go straight to the registers and like okay. a two-step process. Mm. Yeah. So it's a bit concerning that almost 100% of my <laughs> yeah. group is not on that register. Yeah. I think what's important to <laughs> know though is like that 100% there's really not many cases. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a much it's smaller. It's a very small number yeah, of cases. Yeah. It's a very smaller okay. population that yeah. we're looking what at. Other clinicians can make that diagnosis? Is it only like cardiology specialists or is it like a GP could do it? Good question. Um, generally, the like with ARF, you have to refer the the case onto a hospital. So I don't think the GPs necessarily make a diagnosis, more of like a speculation for further testing in the hospital. Um, and usually they do undergo some like, oh, yeah, I'm not actually too sure. <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering because maybe that's an opportunity to target a bit of education. Yeah, yeah, definitely, some definitely. clinicians who aren't making those notifications. Yeah, yeah. Just to clarify something, what was that word you just used, Eredith? 
think she said ARF. ARF. She's a cute rheumatic oh, fever. Oh, okay, sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so abbreviations. Acute yeah. rheumatic fever, yeah. ARF. Rheumatic heart disease, A-R-F-D. RHD. Yeah. That's okay. right. Sorry. Okay. That's right. Okay. I just said that earlier. Just, no, no, no. Just in case people are wondering. That's right. Yeah. Um, okay, so now that you've figured out that we've got this big error in um, recording cases, what would you do to fix it? I think... Um, Education. I think education is one of the key things required. Mm -hmm. Um, Education on behalf of clinicians as well as like patients as well. Um, And I think having a more like linked system, that's the proper word I'm trying to say, but having a more like synchronized system where there is flagging of patients so people aren't being missed just because uh, a clinician didn't realise that there was a notification requirement. Um, yeah, just to make the process a little mm-hmm. bit more efficient in that mm-hmm. sense, I think, yeah. <laughs> okay, very good. Um, Julian, do you All want to right. tell us a bit about yours? Your yeah. turn. Yeah, so I was a little bit different from Maddie and Treasure. I was a qualitative study. Yeah. Um, so it was exploring the sexual health training that youth workers and youth service managers in the Pilbara received. and. How it all started was I've been providing sexual health education since I was in first year uni, so about four years when, when I started my honours, um, and had been kind of all around Perth, down south, up north, and I was lucky enough in, in March of 2019 to go to the Pilbara and talk and do a bit of a tour just educating the young people at youth services um, and talking to youth workers. And I noticed there was a bit of a gap in that the the knowledge for the youth workers and the things that they felt comfortable to talk about. And I was really curious as to why that was. And luckily enough, I knew Karen from uh, years of tutes and public health units and, and things like that. So I, I managed to, to shape my own project, which I was really um, fortunate to do, because mm-hmm. it, it meant that everything that I did during the year aligned with my own interests and Um, So I started this exploratory qualitative study. I interviewed 10 participants um, over Zoom or Skype or telephone. Um, I was hoping to do video interviews for all of them, but apparently the internet is not quite as strong (laughs) in some areas in the pool. Of course. Um, And so five of them were youth service managers and five of them are youth workers. And just talking to them about their experiences receiving sexual health training so like workshops or seminars or um, if someone had come up to the Pilbara, to their town to deliver training or if they had gone down to Perth or gone over east. Yeah. Mm. So the Pilbara is pretty big if, if you haven't been there. It's 500 square kilometres, which is I think two United Kingdoms you could stick inside <laughs> it. It's pretty big. But there's only 60,000 people in that and about 9,000 of them are aged between 10 and 24, so young people. Um, so fairly significant like younger population and also um, a much higher percentage of, of people who are uh, Aboriginal as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a qualitative researcher at all. Yeah. One thing that always baffles me when I do read qualitative research is they talk about the perspective that was taken or the framework that's been used in designing and interpreting the study. Do you, do you have a, a, like an explanation for what that means? and? And did you have a framework? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely had a framework. It's it's basically around the philosophy that guides, um, I guess, the way you gather evidence and the way you consider 
um, the data that you're collecting. So mine were all interviews, but you can do, um, I guess, looking over like case reports, so you can um, observe. So another way I could have done the study was to, to sit in a youth centre and, and watch how the youth workers deliver their, their um, content or interact with young people. But mm -hmm. I thought interviewing them specifically about their experiences would have been more, I guess, yeah. Beneficial. So what perspectives was that using then? So mine was a constructive constructivist framework So that interviewing that back and forth that conversation with the, the youth worker mm -hmm. um, over zoom or Skype um, Just allowed me to get an idea of their own experiences and the way that I was asking my questions were also kind of shaping what data I was getting mm -hmm. so it was very much a shared I guess knowledge building exercise. Mm -hmm. So you, yeah, you were that you were kind of collaborating on the study as opposed to here's the questions answer them and I'll go and analyze them exactly yeah. so yeah. what kind of questions were you asking um, so I was asking them about what training they'd received what education in school they got in terms of sexual health and one of the findings was that youth workers weren't getting very much sexual health training specifically provided by their service or that they managed to get on their own and so a lot of them were falling back on what they learned in school whether that was from their friends or the PE teacher really didn't want to be there. Um, <laughs> and that was quite problematic mm -hmm. yeah. because it was often inaccurate mm -hmm. uh, and not evidence-based. Yeah, and how does that manifest in terms of outcomes, like poor outcomes later on? Yeah. Particularly in, I guess, rural as well. Yeah, and like 99.9% .9 of the Pilbara is classified as very remote, so the highest level of remoteness. Mm -hmm. um, and it's only Karratha, Headland and Roeburn, which are the, the main towns on the, the west mm -hmm. part of the Pilbara that are remote. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the young people there have a lot higher needs, I would say, uh, as a kind of population than a lot of metro or greater south, um, the rest of the state. Mm -hmm. There's high issues with alcohol and drug use, mm -hmm. um, lots of crime, um, sexual abuse and domestic violence as well. So often the households are unstable, the education, like attendance is not great. Mm -hmm. And so all of those opportunities that we take for granted down here uh, in Perth are often missed with young people there. Okay. And so the youth centres and the youth workers and those interactions are really important relationships mm -hmm. that young people have yeah. and a really important potential source of, of good sexual health and relationships information. Mm -hmm. And so with that in mind, um, what did you find and how can you see that benefiting the community, have your findings? Yeah, so I, I went, I talked to people from six different towns, so both West Pilbara and East Pilbara as well. Um, and it's not a homogenous kind of group. You can't just say like Karratha is the same as Newman, is the same as Headland, is the same as Bourbon. Um, it's all very, very different. But the people I was talking with they were finding that they felt that their training was inadequate, that they couldn't, they weren't sure what they, they could talk about, both like in terms of what's acceptable to parents, what's acceptable culturally to the community, uh, and where the limits of their own knowledge was. And they wanted more confidence and more skills to be able to talk to young people because they felt it was important. Mm -hmm. They felt it was part of breaking that, that cycle of disadvantage often. Yeah. Um, Okay. Yeah. And so, with that, with that knowledge, armed with that knowledge, um, how how do you think you, things could be improved? So, one of the big findings was that youth workers and youth service managers, so the people who, I guess, 
and maybe not directing directly interacting with the young people themselves, but are helping and supporting youth workers um, wherever they work. Um, it was a real struggle for them to get training for those youth workers, for the youth service managers, because of the remoteness generally. Mm-hmm. So they had the choice of either flying one person down, as one participant ex- explained it, they could fly someone down to Perth to attend a three-day workshop, but that would that would be their yearly budget for training because they have to pay for wages, accommodation, flights, the training workshop sometimes. Um, and then that one person would come back and they were maybe one of two youth workers mm-hmm. in that service. And now they're inundated, they're swamped with all of this extra work that they have to do. And then they get a 10 minute slot in their one hour meeting to talk about this three day workshop they've done. And it just doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, versus when they had the opportunity to bring up a facilitator who, who had that knowledge and experience and could tailor it to that community. They could bring them up into the town. They could invite other services um, to collaborate with them. And instead of only having three people in the workshop, they could have 20, the, the entire youth sector sitting in one room talking about, well, these are the issues that we've faced. This is what we've been seeing. Oh, you're doing this project? Let's, let's collaborate. So I think overall bringing the training locally and having a really strong sense of community collaboration was was something that most all of the participants echoed. And just uh, quickly, what we probably should have should have asked this earlier, yeah. but what falls under the banner of sexual health? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Um, depends on who you ask. Um, for me, uh, I've been doing sexual health education for four years. Basically, anything that touches sexual health is <laughs> is mine. Um, whether that's mental health um, relating to kind of sexuality, uh, relating to identity around sexual identity and gender identity. Um, It's just relationship building. So forming really healthy, strong relationships, knowing what's abusive and acceptable, what's respectful and what's disrespectful. Um, For me, falls under sexual health. It's also the things that are really common in the literature, like STIs and bloodborne viruses, which Important, I would say, very important, particularly in the Pilbara, which has high STI rates. Uh, that's sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's all of what sexual health is kind of envisag- envisaging. Yeah. Yeah, you always read stories about teenage pregnancy. And yeah, and like, pregnancies are like yeah. important to consider. Contraception mm-hmm. is super important. Um, but I think it's consent, respect for relationships yep. that, that fall under that umbrella that youth services and youth managers want more information about. Yeah, arguably that's been a problem internationally for a long time as we're yeah. seeing things like the Me Too movement. And, exactly. You know. That kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. I, so one thing that kind of has played on my mind previously before is there's there's always a, a huge focus on education and training and all this kind of stuff. So how would the training and the work behind sexual health fit into all of the other training that these youth workers have to do because yeah. you know it's important but so is getting everyone to school so is teaching people how to grow food and all that mm. kind of stuff yeah, no. so where do you think it fits absolutely and one of the quotes that i got from a participant and i'm paraphrasing here but they're talking about how do you bring up sexual health training when there's domestic violence when there's suicide when there's um yeah kids not going to school and that, that was one of the thoughts they were talking about. But another participant put it really well and they were saying, well, it all fits together. It's not just one isolated fix this issue. 
Uh, mm. For these young people, their entire life is AOD, domestic violence, violence, sexual health, everything fits around them and it's this cycle of, I think when you're in this kind of disadvantage of everything just becoming overwhelming. And I think sexual health needs to be tackled before we can um, get a grasp on everything. I think we need to focus on sexual health, focus on mental health, AOD as a collaborative and not just leave one of them out. Yeah. So no service silos. So yeah, I'm, I'm a sexual health practitioner, so your drug problem doesn't matter. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. right. Because that's... Yeah, <laughs> because, yeah exactly. Yeah. Using that example, like, yeah. um, drug problems might influence consent yeah. um, and the ability to consent. Um, even, like I guess, like sexual health, like being able to... Um, like climax can be affected mm-hmm. by your drug use and that might affect your relationships and mm-hmm. it all it's all intertwined. Yeah, mm. oh, very interesting. Yeah, so were there any other key messages to come out of your research? Yeah, so one of them was around online training mm-hmm. and the potential benefits of it because it's, I think, been a bit of a buzzword since the internet began mm-hmm. of this online training um, ecosystem. And I haven't quite yet met anyone who's been entirely satisfied with online yeah. training modules of any kind. Uh, and there was no exception for, for the participants that I, I, I met. Um, they acknowledged that it had huge potential because it, had, it, it, it could bridge that large geographical gap and could mm-hmm. allow them to collaborate in ways that they couldn't if they, were, if they had to attend in person. But so far none of them had encountered online training around sexual health that was actually beneficial that wasn't just a clicking exercise it seems it's one of those areas that's potentially really complex and requires a lot of clarification so you think just being in the same room and being able to ask questions and get instant feedback would be really important so an online training module might be not flexible enough yeah There was, there was talk of it being potentially useful for things like terminology or talking about contraception where it's very factual and kind of could be easily conveyed with a video or text. Mm-hmm. But a lot of the training that's provided by training providers in Perth and in the state is very interactive and in, like envisaged as an engaging, mm-hmm. let's do an activity, let's talk about this. So one of them is Mudich, which um, SHQ, Sexual Health Quarters, which was formerly Family Planning WA. Uh, one of them they run is around sexual health and relationships and training that you can become a, a trainer for, interacting specifically with Aboriginal young people, mm-hmm. and it's all activity-based. It needs to be. You can't just be sit down and talk. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, those are three really great overviews of your projects, and um, it's really interesting to hear about all of them. Um, Maddie, I might ask you a couple of questions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just about um, if you had any kind of general feedback about the process of going through honours and if you were advising someone who was thinking about doing honours, what would you say to them? Any, anything, you know, kind of uh, hints or tips? Or I think it's really hard to explain. Everyone has sort of different experiences throughout the year, but I think everyone learns so much from it and you kind of... Throughout the process you have your own project which you're doing for the whole year which I guess is very different to undergrad sort of learning. You have your own responsibility um, while also balancing some coursework but I guess the project kind of yeah it's a really good learning experience and you can kind of guide it how you want and like how you what sort of skills you want to build you can sort of put more emphasis in those areas. Yeah. Um, I also think it's 
It's a really good experience to work with supervisors and sort of that's a really different relationship to undergrad, you know, you're getting feedback when you probably wouldn't be ready to get feedback in undergrad, you know, you're, as you go you're kind of getting, um, yeah, ongoing sort of support from your supervisors. Um, so I think that was also a really interesting process. Um, and yeah, I would, I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure about you guys <laughs> yet. <laughs> how did you find it compared to doing an undergrad in terms of level of difficulty or, or how challenging it was? Like, is it a step, big step up or is it about the same? Um, just different? Yeah, I think it's, it's just different. It, I didn't, there was definitely challenging times and I guess you do have certain, um, months or weeks where there are, um, maybe a few more assignments due than normal, but um, I think overall it wasn't too much of a step up, but more sort of a different sort of challenge, which, yeah, mm. I think really complements sort of your undergrad sort of coursework learning with more practical sort of skills. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I went into it thinking, oh, like, even before that I was talking to people, oh, they were going like, what are you going to do this year? And it took me a while because in my head I was just thinking, I'm taking a gap year. And then I realised, <laughs> actually, no, I'm, I'm doing honours. Yeah. And then when I did honours, I'm like, this is not a gap year. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah I, made, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> but um, as I went through, it was the support of the people we had. We were really lucky. We yeah. had, it was it eight, nine? No, nine nine people, yeah. yeah. Nine people in our honours group which is fairly fairly it's large for, pu yeah. for at least public health as a yeah. faculty mm. um, and because we were doing our units together we all knew each other from undergrad or from elsewhere in the uni um, it was really easy to kind of share that burden because it can be quite isolating mm. doing research yeah yeah I think that was definitely a huge positive of the year is sort of our cohort going through it together mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah so what skills do you think you gained from it or maybe lost as well. <laughs> I would say one of the major skills you gain from doing an honours is just independence and seeing through a project yourself. Yeah. Um, I think you learn to be a lot more self-driven because with your, yeah, with this year, it's just you doing your project with the facilitation or like some input from your supervisors, but there's no one else who can really do the work for you. So you need to stay on top of it and make sure you know when your deadlines are, because no one's going to be there reminding you of what's to take place. I think it's a year where you can explore um, any specific areas that you have a passion for. So like Julian's passion was sexual health and he was able to um, explore that further and even have an impact within that field of work. And with mine, acute rheumatic fever and rheumatic heart disease. And with Maddie, it was asbestos and getting to know a little bit more about uh, qualitative data. And I'd say that was pretty much the same for me. I had an interest in qualitative. Quick. Oh, quantitative, I'm so sorry. <laughs> My bad. We knew I was talking about it's fine. Quantitative data. It's just a couple um, of letters to yeah. <laughs> Definitely more of a numbers person. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was really cool. I got to learn how to use um, R statistics mm -hmm. or the R coding software. Yeah. Um, got to learn more about coding and the process involved with that. It's actually a lot harder than it was. Yeah. Um, but it's really rewarding once you yeah. start getting the right results or the right, yeah. Functions that you wanted to. Yeah, I think those skills you. stay with you as well. And yeah. definitely, if you go on to practice medicine, then reading academic literature is going to be a big part of your job. And mm. it's going to be know, easier now. Yeah, kind of understanding what's happening. What the, the what the gobbledygook yeah, you know, equation so looks like, you know, <laughs> what it means.
You learn yeah. how to like, synthesize, synthesize information and yeah. also communication skills. That's right. Yeah. And you so can also tell what a good, what's good research and what's bad research. It's so awesome. true. Yeah. Yeah. Le- uh, level of evidence, quality right. of evidence, and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. So if you guys just want to, we'll finish off just by you telling us what you're up to next. What's what's your plan in the future? So I need to work on publishing mine. Very so good. I've found a journal. I just need to find out if they'll accept how many words I want to give them or I need to cut down. Okay. Um, yep. But then after that, I'm hoping to, to present it at a conference and also to disseminate it to the Pilbara. And disseminating to the Pilbara is the main aim. That's right. what I did it for, um, for the youth workers on the ground. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully from that, see an improvement in the, the way training is delivered to youth workers. So who are the key stakeholders in that area? Like which organisations kind of run the services up there that you would want to speak to the most? Yeah, so Headspace, if it's the Youth Mental Health Organisation nationally, but they, they ran a pilot Headspace Pilbara, um, and I think they're going to get more funding, so they're going to continue through, and they're a really good organisation for coordinating all the youth services up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and WACOS, the WA Council of Social Services, as well as Youth Work Australia or Youth Work WA. Um, so those are all peak bodies who can help kind of keep in contact with different organisations and, and youth workers directly. Yeah. Oh, very good. Yeah. Excellent. What about you, Treasure? Um, so from here, I'm hoping to yeah, synthesise and yeah, cut down some words from my manuscript that I submitted and potentially publish to a journal. Um, I was fortunate enough to be accepted uh, to present at a conference, which is exciting. Which conference? Um, Public Health Association Australia. Nice. Yeah. Is that the pre- preventive yeah, that's, medicine yeah. conference? Yeah. yeah. Very so good. that's in May, so I need to yeah work on my presentation. <laughs> I yeah. hate public speaking for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, I think it'll be good. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. And I didn't touch on what you guys have moved on and you're now furthering you your now careers doing? elsewhere, aren't you? Yeah, so we're both in second year at UWA doing yeah. medicine. We have to run off to a clinical skills workshop. Oh, true. Second <laughs> yeah. year in yeah. medicine? Medicine, yes. Yeah. 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 So you guys are future doctors, medical doctors? Yes. Yeah, okay. And any any ambition to do a PhD alongside that? Or? You can join us. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Terrifying but rewarding yeah. if I did do it. Like, I'll, I'll, as a side note, I've done honours, masters, and now I'm doing my PhD. Wow. Honours mm. by far the hardest year. Masters was easier, PhD is the same as Masters. So if you ever consider doing a PhD, I think it's easier than a, than. You get a bit more That's time. You do, there's yeah. more time to kind of yeah. process. And you do a bit more work for this. Yeah. yeah. I guess that was the main challenge of honours is it is like such a short amount of time yeah. and it goes yeah. so quickly. Um, yeah. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And what about yourself, Maddie? What next? Um, well, yeah, I'm also going to work on publishing, but now I'm working on sort of new projects um, in sort of a new area in trauma-informed practice. Um, finishing up, I'll keep going with this project and then hoping next year potentially to move to Broome. Now I've locked myself in, I can <laughs> hold myself accountable um, and sort of work in more community health promotion work. Yeah. Yeah, as well. A- any particular area of health promotion? Um, no, I'm pretty open at the moment. Okay. I need to look into it a bit more. But yeah, I feel like moving to Broome seems like quite an exciting experience. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Yeah, particularly for health promotion yeah. as well. I feel like that's necessary. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah. Any, any final thoughts before we sign off? <laughs> um, 
I'd say, yeah, do an honours. Don't <laughs> <laughs> feel daunted by the process. Yeah. I think prior yeah. to me starting, I was a little bit nervous and anxious, like, all like, I'm not so sure how I'll go with the research and doing a whole year by myself and whatnot. But there will be people there to guide you through the process, and yeah. it'll be very rewarding once you reach the end of it. Yeah, yeah you'll be so glad that yeah. you did it. It's achievable, but like challenging at the same time. Yes. Sort of, yeah, you yeah. do feel really rewarded at the end that you've made it through the year mm. yeah, I should probably give a shout out to Dr Karen Martin as oh, well yes. oh, yeah. who does have a set of gentle hands to That's help right. guide people through the process yeah. as well yeah, absolutely. I definitely think population health was a great honours experience and so the way they run it was really yeah. was really good uh, excellent. Mm. excellent well thanks very much for taking yes. the time out of your busy study and schedule. thank you, yeah. thank you, you so much it's a good thank opportunity <laughs> And that was our conversation with Maddie, Treasure and Julian, 2019 Honours students. As always, we love getting your feedback. You can contact us on Twitter at healthmeanswhat and via email meaningofhealth at outlook.com. Thank you for joining us and we'll be back soon with another episode. Meaning of Health podcast is produced with the support of the School of Population and Global Health and the Education Enhancement Unit at the University of Western Australia. The podcast is produced by Craig Cumming and Courtney Webber with music by Craig Cumming. Mm-hmm.